Welcome to a special edition of The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. For this episode, we travelled to the snowy Swiss mountain resort of Davos to coincide with the World Economic Forum. Our mission was to catch up with a few of the attendees from across the world of big business and to get face-to-face with some much younger changemakers from around the world. So why would anyone come to a snowy mountainside in Switzerland when there are far more accessible connected convention centres in dozens of cities around the world? Matt Britton, Google's boss in Europe, the Middle East and Africa, puts it like this. I think face-to-face interaction is almost more important in the digital world. What's great about digital is you can connect with people who've got shared interests who you would never otherwise have been able to find, which is brilliant. You often find when people do that that they actually want to get together face-to-face. Um, you know, why is Davos a productive place for me to come? You know, my role is quite broad geographically, and I can meet with the CEOs and policymakers from countries around the region, probably have about 40 one-to-one meetings in the time that I'm here that would take months to do elsewhere. Everybody's here with a bias towards action as well, so that's incredibly helpful. Yeah, and except just on this point of taking months, they could have been set up, I suppose, as conference calls, as video calls, telephone calls, and so on. Is there something that happens in a face-to-face environment? You notice could be here, could be internally at Google, that just can't be achieved over digital. Uh, yeah, I think that's. I think it does. At Google, we use our own Hangouts technology. We run the business on it. I have meetings all week with colleagues all around Europe, uh, Middle East, Africa, and actually a lot with California. But I still travel to California probably once a quarter and spend at least a week there. Uh, and what's the difference? Well, I think the difference is the side conversation, the personal chit-chat. I think when you're on a formal meeting, on a call, it tends to be very task-focused. And actually, organizations work through relationships and through trust, and uh, through the ability to ask informal advice quietly with people. All of those sort of informal things are really important. Yeah. I often say at Google to my colleagues, you know, um, behavior eats process for breakfast. And you want to have a culture, which is about how we do things around here, the shared values. And that's hard to build exclusively through uh, sort of digital contact, even if it's high quality video. I was inspired to think more widely about the role that any face-to-face or in-person gathering plays in an increasingly digital world. Here's Unilever's chief marketing officer, Keith Weed. For me, the biggest plus is, is reading people's body language and face. Uh, because the, the thing you cannot do on the phone, um, in an email or whatever, is really read the person. So I think sitting opposite someone, talking to them, I also agree, the early conversation as you're sitting down, that's sort of wasting time together. In a business meeting, you don't waste time together because it's a business meeting or whatever. But if you are you know, sitting down to someone and you're, you're talking to them about something, it's the, the little bit before, the little bit after. You can pick up all sorts of things about how they think. But also as well is where you can quickly strike a deal because you get alignment. A recurring theme in Davos was artificial intelligence or AI. I caught up with Tabitha Goldstorp, co-founder of Cognition X and festival director of COGX, to hear her take on what that can mean. Now, Tabitha... AI, artificial intelligence, it's a phrase I hear everywhere at the moment. Have you got uh, a way you define it, a way you describe it? I like to think about the fact that it's a tool and a technique that we can apply in order to help machines um, see, um, hear, uh, even, even speak, and really start to predict um, and even make decisions based on those predictions. So doing 
the teaching in that sense. And yes. I guess Cognition X, would you describe it as a platform? Yep. So um, we describe ourselves actually as an expert network because what we really pride ourselves in is being able to find the right person to answer a question you might have. So if you wanted to think about like AI in your supply chain or in your HR process, um, where would you start? Who would you work with? There are all these questions that you, know, you don't need a management consultant for yet, but you just want to ask a quick question. And at the moment, you hack your way through Google, but we think it'd be so much easier if you could tap into the knowledge of the many experts that are out there. So you can now tap on your uh, phone or on your laptop and ask those questions, and we find you someone to answer them. CogX, uh, related but different to CognitionX, this is a physical gathering. Yes. Just give us so a sense of it. It is literally the physical gathering of all of our experts um, and corporates and government and academia, and it's quite rare for these people to come together and talk about the impact that AI and other emerging technologies have on society, really. And this year in, in June, we will be taking over a large space at King's Cross. So we'll be able to bring together over 15,000 people to have this conversation. And I'm really, really excited to announce, actually, that we are going to be directing the agenda at the Global Goals. We met several guests during the week who have a social mission at the heart of their business. And one of those is Daniel Shikani, who's the co-founder of Salary Finance. We caught up to find more about what his company is doing. Daniel, hi. What brings you to Davos? Good afternoon, Ollie. Thank you very much for having us. So first of all, look, we were a finalist in the Tech Pioneer Awards at the World Economic Forum last year. Um, we have hosted a panel um, on purpose in the workplace um, last year with a number of um, fantastic uh, individuals who are championing that on a global level. And this year we were hosting with Mercer the Change Challenge. That was really all about the future of work. How do we really position our employees will be that full-time or the gig economy for a longer life where we have um, uh, income which isn't consistent. Uh, we have an environment where really when it comes to financial wellness, which is the core of what we do, we can help employee initiatives which are holistic approaches to helping employees get out of debt, ultimately right. into savings. So financial awareness, but essentially salary finance you're a fintech company, Absolutely. but you have a social purpose. Yes. So t tell us a bit more about the two then. So first and foremost, our mission is to make millions of employees across the globe financially healthier and happier. And we do that by providing a platform to employers for free, which enables employees to access a hub providing financial education, but also access to affordable borrowing and also savings. And in doing so, we've been able to show we can improve an employee's credit score. We can keep them out of debt over time. But most importantly, we can make sure that they are more engaged at work and retained in their employers. And you work with an astonishing array of companies from Saga to Carlsberg, Hayes, Metro Bank, Mighty, and, and, and many more. Is your sense that there's something about this much younger generation mm -hmm. that in any way cares more about their financial well-being and, 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 and as a separate concept, I suppose, the world around them? Or has it always been the case? What do you notice? So there is the gut feel that the younger generation absolutely are moving towards much more uh, simpler uh, one-click solutions or as close to possible uh, saving solutions. So we're seeing that in the data. So from a data perspective, we're seeing that those who are under 35 years old, and particularly if you see the millennials as well, they are saving much more via online banking, even payroll deducted savings, which is a heart of what we're doing, really starting to gain a lot of traction now. One of the people funding more purposeful companies is Hayley Mole, member of the Young Investors Organisation and investment associate at Flat World Partners. We talked about her investments in companies which make money and make a difference, and I wondered if there is a trade-off between the two. Hello, Heli. Hi. Uh, now, Heli, tell me, what brings you to Davos? 
So I'm very lucky to be here with a very cool group called the Young Investors Organization. Um, we're essentially a group of entrepreneurs and investors trying to make the world a better place, but we have a really great partnership with Credit Suisse and they've made it possible for us to be here. Okay, and tell me a bit about Flat World Partners. So Flat World Partners is a very forward-thinking investment advisory firm and we do primarily sustainable and impact investing and all of our clients really want to do something better for the world, but keep making the same returns they've been making and make sure that their assets are safe. And in terms of impact investing, then mm -hmm. we're measuring more than just the financial return. So give us an example of the sort of thing you might be looking for. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, impact investing is, for us, first and foremost, it must still be a good investment. So however anyone else is looking at it, we need to make our clients' money back at the end of the day. But, for example, we look a lot at sustainable agriculture, which, of course, I really love, and we track how a certain fund is managing agricultural operations based on water and energy efficiency, how they're treating their labor, what they're growing and their acknowledgement of climate risk, carbon sequestration. So we try and take all of those metrics into account, but at the end of the day, most of it's still figuring out if these are just good people doing good things. When you're speaking to investors yeah. about impact investments, mm -hmm. to what extent are they prepared to compromise on the levels of return they could have expected yeah. in other forms of investment? Uh, or to what extent are they pushing you and you pushing yourselves hard to match those and perhaps even exceed them? Is there a trade-off that you see? I think in impact investing, there can be a trade-off between the impact you'd like to achieve and the returns you're going to get. But there is a huge spectrum of opportunity out there. We've looked at incredible opportunities where you can co-invest alongside a development bank and they are going into countries you'd never dream of investing. But those are secure investments they're going to give you a lower return. So there you're achieving very high impact, stable returns, but not very not very high. Whereas we also talk to private equity firms who are achieving market rates, exactly what you'd want returns, but doing amazing things in, you know, in bigger businesses. And I think if you look at that scaling opportunity, there's, that's also real impact. It doesn't all have to be helping smallholder farmers in Peru, you know, if we can get some of the biggest companies in the world to reduce their carbon emissions, that's also impact and you're going to get returns there too. Excellent. What have you noticed about Davos? Because from one angle, it's quite a surreal gathering. Uh, what have you noticed about it? How would you describe it? Well, Davos is very cold, first of all. But <laughs> Minus 16 today. Yeah, it's, a, it's been an interesting buzz to be around. I've met some interesting people just from hearing conversations they were having and also in the shuttles that are going backwards and forwards. I think everybody is here with kind of an aligned collaborative vision to do something, whether it's, you know, in the same industry or not. So there's a lot of conversation that I think is happening more organically than it normally would. What have you learned from the YIO about how great international groups can keep in touch and collaborate even when they're not face-to-face? Because -face. this is a lesson which I guess ought to be shared. Yeah, I think um, in the YAO we're very lucky that people connect on an emotional level very quickly. So that fosters longer-term relationships. Um, we've had a couple of marriages come out of the YAO, so very long-term relationships. Um, but I think we've also learned to put aside certain differences of the places we come from. So no matter what religion you are, what political regime you support, the conversations we're having are about our families, they're about our own lives, and that kind of lets you shift the world's problems to the side, connect, and then say, right, now we're on the same page, how do we start moving forward together? For some of the guests, Davos seems to be more about the ideas and thinking it can stimulate, aside from any deals being done. Anton Spitalak is the co-founder of Tribe Breweries. Anton, welcome. Howdy, Ollie. Well, very good to see you again. Tell me, Anton, what brings you to Davos? 
it's basically brain food, right? I mean, like I've got a very hectic, um, very deep dive business that I'm operating at the moment. And for me to take a break out of that and be stimulated and interested by an interesting group of global people who have all coming from diverse backgrounds, some of whom are involved in nonprofits, some of whom are politically motivated, some of whom are entrepreneurs, that's a really kind of stimulating experience. Give us a sense of the company, what it does, what it's all about. Yeah, so Tribe Breweries, in a nutshell, is a, is a beverage manufacturer, but something greater than that is that you know, our role in that ecosystem is to provide a bridge between advanced consumer trends and then the capability and the brands that want to deliver it. So we have portfolios of products that we try and be pretty innovative on and pretty disruptive of, and then we work with a lot of artisans who have inspiration and ideas, but no capability of which to manufacture and bring goods to market. And we kind of marry that two aspects together to kind of provide a pretty broad platform so that when people want something new, something different, something disruptive, then we're there to be able to satisfy it one way or another. And if you think about even just this relatively short uh, trip to Davos this year, any conversations or themes that you're picking up on uh, that resonate with you or that you find interesting? For me, you know, the kind of conversations I'm participating in is generally those that I'm driving. And they're really about the current kind of political landscape and change and what it means for us as society and whether or not you know, we're pointing in a positive direction or whether or not democracy is decreasing or whether or not radicalism is increasing. What role do young people have in all that? What role do the major institutions that we, you know, we participate in, where do they play in all that? That's the kind of stuff that's interesting me today, only because I'm a keen observer of how broken that ecosystem is in the environments that I operate in, and that's why I'm pushing conversations in that direction. And in terms of the role that young people can play in the future of their countries, for example, how could that evolve? Well, I mean, look, so the major changes that we're seeing on the public stage at the moment are through some of the Western democracies that took a long time to develop and who were in some ways, you know, the early risers when it came to the democratic movement. And I think that that kind of democratization of the individual is something that we're seeing playing out across a number of levels. You know, at the government level, obviously, you know, you can, you, you matter as an individual. At the government level, your vote matters. You know, at the political level, what you feel, how you push your friends to be, all that, it does matter. You have a voice and there's never been greater platforms and tools than there are today in order to amplify that voice. That exact same thing is also playing out on the commercial side. So the companies we back, the products that we buy, you know, that identity definition that we talked about before is very much translated to the public world. And so, for, you know, for you, your power as both a consumer and a political participant has never been greater but also your responsibility has never been greater because it feels as if the stakes are much higher. I got a real sense that Anton, along with a number of other guests I met during the week, is a real optimist about the opportunity to connect brilliant ideas with the capital they need to thrive and grow. I think, you know, what's really encouraging, although there's a lot of dark trends that are happening globally at the moment, is that a young kid, no matter where they're born in the world, has a real chance to make connections to people all over the world you know, experts, capital providers, people that can give them a chance to bring their ideas to market to benefit the most number of people. And if you look at that on a graph and the capability of a random child to be able to do that, it's probably never been greater. So I feel as if the tools of which to, to promote that have never been around better than they are now. And it's just a function now of letting them play out and making sure that we proliferate them in as free a market as we can, because you really do never know where the next best idea is going to come from and who it's going to benefit. And only by having liberalised access can that give it the best chance. As the heads of state and global CEOs put their heads together, I was just as interested to find out what was on the minds of the next generation. Here's Bazanka Vitanova on what brings her to Davos. Bazanka, here we are um, in, uh, in the mountains in Davos. Um, something you've noticed about this gathering and any theme or conversation which has really struck a chord with you? Um, so I, I am working on the future of work. So most of the conversation I have been a part of uh, have been around then. 
Um, so I think that's something that that has been interesting is um, this notion of a, of a borderless workforce and then organizations seeing their workforce as something much more than what is on their payroll. And how do you work with those people? How do you help them ensure that their financial security? How do you reskill them? So there were some very interesting conversations. So it's not just geographic borders. We're talking organizations being much more porous, I suppose. Yes. So uh, kind of including contractors, suppliers, gig workers into this notion of a workforce and then extending the benefits that organization extend to their employees to this larger workforce. So that has been something, I've had some interesting conversations around that. You've had across your career this incredible involvement in some phenomenal international organizations, including One Young World and others. Has that always been the case? And how did that first start? I, I know it's fueled your, your global perspective, but how did you get into that? Um, that's a good question. Um, well, I guess coming from a smaller country, I grew up in Macedonia. I, uh, I kind of wanted a global perspective. And then I went to a, a small college. It was very international. Uh, so it was a thousand students and they were coming from around 30, 35 countries. So I think those were my formative years and I kept looking for that. Uh, and then my, my friends and uh, all of my uh, work assignments have been very global ever since. And I think that's where I feel most, most comfortable. Again and again during the week, I heard reference to the Sustainable Development Goals, the collection of 17 global goals set by the United Nations General Assembly. And I found myself having conversations about how technology can make a positive difference to the world around us. Here's Matt Britton again. There are some really interesting things emerging from the reality of what we're doing with machine learning and what people are doing with machine learning. Um, you mentioned DeepMind. It's great that they are based in London. We've got, uh, they're really the spearhead of a lot of our research in this area, but also Google more broadly is working this. So uh, we actually published recently a review of all Google's work in uh, AI and machine learning last year. Lots of it, just like a research field in computer science, is open so others can take what we've learned and build on it. A couple of things I'd say. First is, um, although it's easy to write headlines saying machine learning is going to sort of eat the world and jobs are all going to be destroyed, actually the reality is it's a bit like electricity. It can make you a lot more productive. None of us are worrying about, well, is electricity going to destroy jobs? It's just allowing me to you know, spend the two hours I would have spent a day doing the washing up, doing other stuff. What we've learned on things like the medical side is uh, actually that the um, machine on its own uh, or doctors on their own are not as good as the combination of the two. And I think, you know, think about it as just ways of building tools that can work. But also I think, you know, there are genuine concerns. And we published uh, last year our AI principles, uh, which we think we will evolve and develop. Uh, we published them for debate and discussion. How do we guide ourselves to the right ways to think about these new technologies? So there's a, a good debate which we've tried to prompt ourselves. And we're working with more and more organizations collaboratively on how you develop this field, how we make sure it's used for good. Uh, I think it's an exciting time to be a part of it. And here's Tabitha Goldstorb from Cognition X. It's quite clear that technology and especially artificial intelligence can be applied to some of the world's greatest problems. Alongside the small companies, the charities and the social enterprises, I wanted to explore the role that big corporations can play in improving the state of the planet. Unilever makes some of the world's best-known brands and those are used by over 2.5 billion people every day. Here's their chief marketing officer again, Keith Weed. 
Well, one of the things I put in place was what we call uh, the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan. And you can go and look it up online. Um, and it's our social environmental commitments. We made some big, bold commitments now. It was 2010. Um, uh, way into the future, about sourcing all our agricultural raw materials uh, sustainably by 2020. Then it was 7%. Now it's 65%, well on the, uh, on the journey. You know, we're the largest tea company in the world, the largest ice cream company in the world, the largest soap company in the world. You know, we have a lot of, uh, of raw materials that we want to source uh, sustainably. Now, in terms of doing things differently, one of your first moves when you took the position as global CMO was you scrapped the CSR division. Now, this would something be something that might strike fear into the hearts of anyone who wanted to make the world a better place. However, I sense you had a very particular reason for doing this. What was it? Yeah, so when I was given the role of Chief Marketing Officer, I was actually also given the role of running sustainability. So that's environmental and social sustainability, and also communications, internal, external policy, etc. And actually, it's the joining up of that and realising that what you didn't want to do is have marketing in one corner trying to sell more stuff. The communications team in another corner trying to find some nice project uh, somewhere in the world they could put into the annual report with a nice photograph. And then the sustainability people in another trying to save the planet. Um, and, and what struck me is CSR, corporate social responsibility. Now, if you have a group of people doing corporate social responsibility, it's sort of like they're doing good stuff to negate all the bad stuff everyone mm. else is doing. Sort of offsetting. Yes, and so my thought was, no, we want to mainstream sustainability. Is it, sustainability is going to be everyone's responsibility in Unilever. And can we create a, a new business model that has social and environmental sustainability at its core, as opposed to something you add on? And we've found trying to get people to change the way they do things, to be more environmentally or social responsible, is very, very difficult. And the answer is, is what you have to do is you have to bake it into the product. So we have to innovate in ways that you sort of get sustainability for free. You can't avoid it. So my lesson is manufacturers, business leaders, we have to put uh, the innovation into the products to enable people to live more sustainably. Another theme which seemed to be top of people's minds and agendas was a rising awareness around our mental health. One aspect of that is its link with our financial health. Here's Daniel Shikani. Right, and you make me recognise, Daniel, that financial well-being is inextricably linked with our mental well-being, Absolutely. which in turn impacts on everything around us. Yeah, and I think, look, the BITC, if you look at the core things that BITC is focused on, mental health is front and centre of that topic. We see financial um, wellness as part of that. So I think that if you can align with the key issues that people really care about, you're much more likely to get engagement and focus. A last statistic I'll share with you is that today only 50% of CEOs recognize financial well-being and financial wellness, as the term is known in the US, as a top five priority in their firms. So there's still a lot of education to be done on this issue, and we're still early in the journey. So we have an opportunity to make real change. Guests at the World Economic Forum itself included Prince William, and Sir David Attenborough. And it was clear that the item at the top of many people's concerns was the planet itself. Here's Nishad Shafi from Qatar, who represents the Arab youth climate movement. Nishad, welcome. Thank you. Thank you to be here. It is a pleasure to meet you uh, for the first time here. I believe this is your first visit to Davos. So let me ask, what brings you to this mountain? Well, uh, this Davos has a big mandate on environment and climate change. And I mean, I think it's the youth perspective and the environment as a main agenda for this year's Davos made me bit optimistic of coming to Davos as such. I can take an example of one in world community. It itself is a great show of how young people across the globe are connected. Some institute which is helping and giving as a platform and the young people share their experience and they support each other. Probably somebody doing a project in Africa, 
So it's an opportunity with Nishad to work in guitar, like he may find some potential stakeholders who can fund their projects. I mean, th that's the connection, I believe. I mean, that's what young people are looking for. We cannot change the world in like one second or one year or in years to come. But we believe in a, a fact that we can do it together. How do we increase the urgency, the pace of these solutions, these developments? What would you like to see change and happen? That's exactly why I'm here in Davos. That's the business leader. If our government acts too slow, I think the only people who can push our government before the public are the business leaders. They are behind the governments all the time. If they make a call for putting billions of dollars on renewables and they ask the government, we need change of policy so that we invest more on renewables than on a fossil fuel, government has to listen. So we leave Davos with as many questions as answers. And for many guests, a real sense of what next. Here's an honest reflection from Hayley Mole. I think I'm a bit confused in general about what happens after this. There's a lot of incredible conversations. There is, I mean, the intellectual power of the people here is unbelievable, but it's a lot all in one week. So I'm interested to see, you know, who needs to talk to who for this to become something. I hugely enjoyed meeting all of the guests during the week. And something that Nishad Shafi said particularly struck a chord. I think what we don't have in the world right now is uh, humanity lost that value of love and affection. Probably that's why we are in so much of crisis. Nationalism is growing. Probably those are things I believe. There's a loss of uh, love and affection towards fellow human beings right. beyond the borders of uh, you know country or region. During our conversation, Anton struck a positive tone and reflected that for the change makers in our society, this could be the perfect time to connect great ideas with the capital they need to thrive. If you wind the clock back and look at things from a historical period, what would be encouraging is that there's never been a faster connection of capital and the capability to make change to those who have the ideas. And I think that that's a very powerful moment for us. You know, how we use that is obviously up to us. Obviously, there's a whole generation of outrageously powerful information magnates, basically, who are milking us for, for, for data and profiting on that and some crazy amount. But then the reality is, is that you know, if you have a really good idea and it has a you know, dual concept where you can help people and it connects to their spiritual requirement for morality, at the same time as you have you know, a capability to make money, then your path to capital, to growth, to connection to gazillions of consumers has never been shorter. So that opportunity is very vast. If you feel as if you have some recipe for change, then you should have a crack at it because you know, the chance for you not only to make an impact, but also to put yourself on a very high velocity journey has never been greater. Of course, the real question for anyone listening is how to make this happen. And I reflected that increasingly, international networks will play a big role in this, from One Young World to the Young Investors Organisation. Here's Bazanka Vitanova again, who speaks six languages and has lived and worked in seven different countries on the importance of connecting across borders. So I, I am working on the future of work, so most of the conversation I have been a part of, uh, have been around then. Um, so I think that's something that, that has been interesting is um, this notion of a, of a borderless workforce and then organizations seeing their workforce as something much more than what is on their payroll. And how do you work with those people? How do you help them ensure that their financial security? How do you reskill them? So there were some very interesting conversations. It's not just geographic that. borders. We're talking organizations being much more porous, I suppose. Yes. So uh, kind of including contractors, suppliers, gig workers into this notion of a workforce and then extending the benefits that organizations extend to their employees to this larger workforce. So that has been something, I've had some interesting conversations around that. 
I left Davos feeling a huge sense of the scale of the challenges we face, and yet somehow uplifted by the potential of technology and entrepreneurial thinking to help us solve our biggest problems. More than ever, we need to make and encourage the right connections. And core to this is going to be fostering cross-generational, cross-sector, cross-industry, cross-border collaboration. And remembering that whilst technology has a role to play, it will be the meeting of human minds which makes the biggest difference. Thank you for listening to this special edition of The Lens, which is created by Business in the Community, powered by Fujitsu, and supported by McCann. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.